Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Dark Roses. Question. What is better than an exciting true crime story? How about 13 such stories in one book? Award-winning author Michael Benson has penned just such a book, Dark Roses, and joins me today on Murder Most Foul. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. Did you, uh, let me ask you before we even get into them, did you set out and like have a bunch of these and want to put them together? Or did you set out to say, let me write a book, smaller chapters with more cases? Well, more, more the latter. Uh, the, the final 13 uh, wasn't in concrete until two days before I decided to publish it. Uh, there, was a, there was a lot of shuffling going on. Um, Sheila Labar was a late entry. Uh, <laughs> Hollywood, Hollywood Ripper became uh, one of the stories because I was in LA and I said, well, let's, let's poke around as long as I'm here. Hollywood Ripper, that's a good place to start. Let's start with that case. Okay, well, Michael is a serial killer who never traveled very far to commit his crimes. He stayed very, very close to his comfort zone, uh, often didn't even leave the block. And that's how they, they finally solved his first murder. Uh, his first murder was of a uh, young woman, high school girl named Tricia Picaccio. And uh, that was August 14th, 1993. Her father found her on the front stoop of the house at 9.15 a.m. on a Saturday morning, put his dog on a leash, came out and found his daughter stabbed horribly to death on, on, the, on the front stoop. Um, and the whole neighborhood was awoken by his wails of despair as he you know, fell on top of her. Um, and the case grew cold right away. There, there weren't many suspects. But Trisha's mom noticed that one of Trisha's friends from school was acting oddly. Uh, he not only sent flowers to her, which was very nice, you know, sorry for your loss, but he sent dad a shirt. Sorry for your loss. Here's a little something, a shirt. And, and one time mom came home and there's Michael Gargiulo sitting at the kitchen table. So oh, I let myself in. Uh, I just wanted to tell you in person how sorry I am for your loss. At this point, she talks to the cops. You know, Michael Gargiulo says, no, nah, wasn't me. I'm just, I'm just feel really bad about it because Trisha was such a great girl. Well, we jump ahead eight years. And there's a, another vicious murder. This time it's in the Hollywood Hills. A student model actress named Ashley Lauren Ellerin who lives in a wooden bungalow. I was surprised at how close it was to uh, the old Grumman's Chinese Theater. 
just up the hill. You could look down on the theater. If they were having a debut with the, with the spotlights going, you'd have a beautiful view of it. And that's where young, this young woman lived. And the, she had been stabbed to death in a horrible fashion, almost beheaded. You know, one cut to her throat. You know, they, I think killers sometimes try to behead, but they get to the spine and their knife doesn't work. The, the, the case made it into the papers and was quite sensational because Ashley had a date the night she died with Ashton Kutcher, who at that time was a young actor. He'd just been in a movie called Dude, Where's My Car? He was, I think, in the first season of the 70s show. Um, later marries Demi Moore. And he went over to pick her up. She didn't answer the door. He was a little lady figure. Maybe she was mad, went out without him. He even peeks in the window and notices that there's a lot of wine stains around. And he wonders, maybe there'd been a wild party there and a lot of people had spilled wine. Uh, he'd been at a party there once. He thought it was kind of wild. Uh, but later finds that, you know, he finds out that it's blood from, from his date. And he is almost immediately exonerated. He's you know, all torn up. He really didn't know her that well. It was going to be their first date. I think it was a Grammy Awards after party they were going to go to. Um, and again, case grows, oh, case grows cold. You know, nobody realizes that just across the street lives Michael Gargiulo. Jump ahead again, four years to December 1st, 2005, we're at now. And a woman named Maria Bruno is asleep in her home, um, an apartment house in El Monte, California, south of Pasadena. Um, and she's a mother of four, recently separated from her husband and starting a new life. So she's alone. She's a single mom. And she made certain to move into an apartment house. And I've been to the apartment house. Uh, with good security, uh, but it, the good security did her no good at all because she wakes up and finds a man on top of her and he, she's stabbed to death. And for the first time, Gargiulo is comfortable enough, and this reminds me of Jack the Ripper too, indoors alone with his victim, so he decides to play with her. And he, he removes her breast implants and just... Now that the sexual mutilation thing that we we found when Jack the Ripper was only indoor victim. Um, so and again, yeah, one of her nipples was cut off and placed on her mouth. So now we jump ahead three years this time, two and a half. Springtime 2008, woman by the name of Michelle Murphy wakes up in her Santa Monica apartment. And there's this guy on top of her. Only Michelle Murphy is a fighter. She grabs the knife. and there's like her, her worst injury was a cut to her hand. Grabs a knife, kicks him, kicks him, finally kicks him right off the bed. And he runs. She runs out after him, which is amazing. She runs toward him. And they're in the living room together. And he's got the blue, you know, the blood dripping off his knife still in his hand. He goes, I'm sorry. And he leaves. And goes home, which is just on the other side of the alley. So she calls the police. Please show up. And they follow the blood drops. Whoop, 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 like breadcrumbs. 
and they arrest Michael Gargiulo. So DNA solves the first, the, the, the last three cases. It makes, and it makes the papers. And, you know, Mrs. Picaccio in Illinois says, Michael Gargiulo, that's the weirdo who was sitting at my kitchen table, let himself in so that he could offer his condolences. So she calls the police. And as far as I know, he, he has never confessed to the first murder, but he is scheduled to be extradited and tried a, a, a situation that's been put on hold because of the pandemic. So there's really not an update there, but it, he's expected to be convicted of, of that crime as well, which gives him four. And he became known as the Hollywood Ripper. And his trial, again, made the papers because Ashton Kutcher testified for the prosecution, talked about the wine stains and the, the, the timing of it. Now, the, in the tri so the trial uh, that he sat for, that Ashton Kutcher, uh, was that, did it combine cases or was it only uh, they the, combined, the they actually combined the, Ellerin? They, they combined the L.A. County cases, yes. And um, and and though the uh, this is what a good good pro, uh, good uh, defense attorney does, as you point out in your book, and you have exchanges in the book which are fun to read. That uh, he was obviously Ashton Kutcher was cross examined, and defense was of course trying to you. That's part of it. Is my client didn't do it, or if he did it, this is you know he's crazy. So he didn't do it. Ashton Kutcher did it, right? And and so in the beginning though, Ashton Kutcher first on the stand was sort of like. Let me clear this up. I'm not a suspect, right? And I guess it was the prosecutor said, no, no, you're no, not. You're no, you are no longer a suspect, he said. And so he's convicted and, and of course, sentenced to death in, in California. But as I've covered a lot of these cases in California, and nobody's going anywhere. Not going to happen. And no one's going, I mean, no one, no one's going anywhere. So that's fine. But if he goes to Illinois or will eventually for that one, I think I'm pretty sure they have the death penalty. And, um, and it's probably a little bit more likely that it might happen there. Um, Although not quickly. Let's go, but let's move now to, because uh, it's near and dear to my heart. The other one I saw again, this is one in Penfield, New York which is uh, a suburb of Rochester, New York. And uh, this is the case of the murder of Craig Rideout. Let's, let's uh, delve into that. Okay. Uh, well, I'm from Rochester as well. Um, and writing about Rochester crimes is one of my, one of my great joys and, and, and sorrows. Um, it's, uh, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to go through the whole story, but yeah, my babysitter was murdered when I was nine and it went back in 2011 and uh, we, we sort of figured out who did it. Uh, we, as an encore, uh, we wrote about uh, double initial murders and uh, I've, I've been covering various Rochester murders ever since. But this one I, I, I like because it's a family affair. You know, mom and the kids get together to kill dad and yeah, yeah, very, very family that kills together and <clears throat> and apparently none of them were smarter than your average tree stump um because after they killed dad they don't want him to be identified right away so they 
poor Drano or something on his face, hopefully posthumously. Um, and, you know, he's just a, he's a gory mess. And then they take him out in the country and they, they throw him in the woods. They're going to bury him in Rochester, the ground's frozen half the time, hard as a rock and t- roots running through. They, they failed to dig a grave. So they just threw a tarp over him. The body's found almost over him because well, they, the guy sees that there's strange activity, a neighbor, and goes over and lifts the tarp and sees a foot and calls the cops. Cops show up. All They remove the tarp and there's poor Craig Wright out without a face. And they're going, oh, this is a rough one. And then they hear, and the killers forgot to take his cell phone out of his pocket. So they reach into his pocket, answer it. Hello. And it's Craig right out sister going, I'm looking for my brother. He's missing. Do you have any idea where he is? And the cop goes, yeah, we might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're meanwhile trying to stifle laughter because why would you go out all, all this work to, to avoid identification of the body and then leave his cell phone in his pocket? They, they completely botched the disposal of the body. The body's found very quickly. Uh, their, their activity is so suspicious that their cops are called while they're still in Mend- at Menden Ponds, throwing a bag full of you know, empty Drano containers and stuff and into, the, into the pond, which is still floating on the surface. So they, they end up calling the, the Scottsville Fire Department because they have a rowboat. They come over to retrieve the stuff. Uh, a, a completely botched job. And yet the trial, I, you know, I, I know that not all true crime readers love lengthy courtroom scenes, but I do. I mean, I grew up reading Perry Mason and I just love a courtroom drama because all of the characters are in the same room. And the, even though it's, it, it, it plods along sometimes and it goes by rules that seem very, very strict, uh, it's some of the most fascinating, thing, fascinating things happen in courtrooms. And I've had the pleasure to observe some of those. Uh, but in, in this case, for one thing, one, one thing that, that I, strikes me is that to choke to death a grown man with a, a garret right. is pr- probably something that a, a little lady can't do by herself. So somebody helped her. Um, and of course her boyfriend was, was completely, completely exonerated, even though when the wife goes to, was it Walmart, Walmart, yeah, yeah, to, uh, to buy the materials, buy the tarpaulin and and the, 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 the bungee cord they used to choke him and the bungee cord they used to tie the tarpaulin closed, uh, She's with her boyfriend and the surveillance cameras pick it up. And there they are. They're coming in. They're leaving with the stuff. But the boyfriend gets away with saying, well, yeah, I knew she bought that stuff, but I didn't know why. Nobody ever told me that it was for that. And that was reasonable doubt. And he's out there being free and we have to refer to him by his initials. Nah, he's a killer. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) I, I don't use the word alleged. I don't have to use the word alleged. I'm not a journalist. I'm not in, in law enforcement. No, no, no alleged here, man. That then we come down to the trial and the and the jury 
picks and chooses. I'm, I'm being a little facetious about, okay, I think he's more culpable than him and, and whatnot. So you say PJ gets off. Um, is it Colin is, is convicted as part of the murder? The other son is as tampering with evidence. And Laura, the the white ex-wife or soon to be ex, is convicted. So my my got the next the, now, yeah. Go to jail uh, properly on that. Yeah, the uh, the the case has parallels to another suburban Rochester case, the Charlie Tan case, uh, where the son kills dad with a shotgun right in the kisser, and uh, they can't find anybody who likes dad. They can't find a single person who's sorry that dad is gone. Dad was apparently a monster, and he, he was killed because you know he needed to die. Uh, and that was that was the general feeling among all of Charlie's friends and in Rochester in general. The guy was a monster. Nobody liked him. Boom. But that's not the case here. Right. Um, Craig Rideout had a lot of friends and a lot of people came to his, you know, to try to save his legacy. And every time Laura or her lawyers would start talking about what a bad guy Craig was, there'd be an uproar. So it's, I mean, you can't believe, you can't judge a man by what his ex-wife says about him. Uh, moving on to, uh, this is one of my favorites. Um, it's my second. We're sort of going in descending order. My last one is my favorite favorite, but this one is next in the family of terror, the McCrary family. Um, this one, again, I know, I think you, you, you term it well, right. In the first couple of sentences about that, this, this was a snuff family. I mean, they just killed people to kill them. Uh, so tell us about Sherman and Liz and Tammy oh, and Danny. Yeah, sure. Sherman McCrary uh, was, was a, he was a criminal. He wasn't really good at doing real jobs. He was lazy. So he, he was easier to steal. And he married a woman who was good at, uh, at forging checks. Uh, but their lives get really interesting when their daughter, Marries a fellow named Carl Taylor, who's just like dad, and a, a little bit smarter and ambitious. And there's there's worry at first that the two men aren't going to get along because you know they're two dirtbags. How will it work? But they do get along because they have interests in common, and they 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 form a routine. And the routine is they would go out at night and find a donut shop on a road and, and, and back, this is in the 1970s. It was common to have one teenage girl working alone in a diner or restaurant out, out in the, the country. And they would go in, they'd take the money and they'd take the girl and they'd drive out to a remote place, rape her and then kill her. At which point the foursome would move. Now, the women didn't know about the killing part. They, they knew that they were going out and robbing, never figured it out. They would come home and say, well, we got to move. I'll get in the car and move to another town in another state. And the process would repeat 
But there's one case where they find the per they, they go past the donut shop and there's the cute little girl in the waitress uniform working behind the counter. Ooh, it's a good one. This is a good one. And, but there were other customers. So they go in, order cups of coffee, and they wait. And they wait till the other customers leave. And then they do their thing. Well, one of the customers who was the last to leave contacts the police and says, well, I was there. And there were these two really creepy looking guys that came in and they take him to the restaurant and he says, that coffee cup right there, that's the one one of them was drinking out of. Dusted for prints, boom, it's Carl Taylor's print. And that was how they ended up catching them. But they would never have figured out that the, all the, the bad paper that was being passed and the senseless murder of a waitress were happening in combinations in different areas of the country. And they still don't know exactly how many these guys killed. Yeah. Uh, Sherman McCrary and Carl Taylor are, are driving down the road and they spot just what they like, a donut shop. They see the cute waitress and they go inside and up pops the waitress's boyfriend. They didn't know he was there. Surprise. So it's a little bit of a complication. They pull out their guns, take the money, and take both the woman and her boyfriend as their prisoners. And then they drive them out to a barn, and they do the they do their thing in this sequence. They they rape the girl while her boyfriend is watching. Then they kill the boyfriend while the girl is watching. Then they kill the girl, being. So sadistic that you make the person go through the worst moments of their life and then kill them. Now, they had Carl's uh, fingerprints off the coffee cup at a uh, prior robbery, but how uh, did the authorities finally um, catch up to the family of terror? Yeah, Sher Sherman and Carl have a falling out, and Carl decides that he's going to bump off a, uh, a large grocery store, many, many cashiers in a row, all by himself. And he gets in there and... Uh, <laughs> tries to do it by, I've got a gun. Everybody stand still and empty the cash registers. Well, it just doesn't go well. He's bumping into things. He's, he's, people are slammish. I can't open it. I need a key. There's no key. And finally, he, he gets a little bit of money, but not as much as he'd hoped for. And he flees. And there's a cop sitting in his car in the parking lot eating a donut you know, or whatever he's doing. <laughs> so Carl pulls his gun walks up to the cop and shoots him. A guy who's gathering uh, carts out in the parking lot gets his license plate number. And that, that's how they, they finally locate Carl. And Carl. But even better than that, I mean, you got to make a movie of this. As you point out, the, the cart kid, uh, God bless him or he's an idiot, reaches into the cop car and takes the cop's gun and nice. shoots either at Carl or Carl's car. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But Ret misses or returns some fire. Yeah. Um, so but, the, I mean, the, the McCrary's are at home, and that's, uh, there's uh, 
on the news on the radio the cops shot at a parking lot of a grocery store and they're going oh no i think i think we know what's coming and sure enough next stop is the mccrary house and then they're all under arrest and so they're all um so again help me it's so it's so bizarre who eventually who is uh ultimately charged just carl and and uh sherman or does uh, liz or any of the, well, no, the girls the girls go down as well for uh for fraud i mean multiple multiple okay they've been living off of bouncing checks for years and, and cash register money and so uh yes you do have a nice list uh in the back of what where everyone ends up you know people uh, die in prairie becomes despondent in prison and kills himself I'm sick of doing time i love that line it's a quote the last line of, of that seg segment is I'm, I'm just old and tired of doing time Well, that brings us to, yes, indeed, fans, my favorite, which is called Vengeance is Mine, the story of a woman named Sheila. Well, Sheila Bars, born in Alabama, uh, and apparently was abused as a, as a little girl by her father and his friends. She comes out of childhood, clearly a damaged person. She's just flat out mean she's she is and power hungry and she is um nymphomaniacal and she associates her genitalia with her power i could go on i could go on for a long time talking about things that sheila believes but there, there comes a day when she's a young woman and her boyfriend has the nerve to break up with her right to her face and she says, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to kill myself. So she downs a bottle of pills, gets in a car and drives. And when she eventually falls asleep at the wheel, she has a terrible car crash. And she's actually seriously injured. She's in a coma, which she wakes up from. And then years later, says that while she was in that coma, she was in heaven and she talked to God and a bunch of other wise men with long white beards. Not you or I, but those in heaven. And God said, we're not ready for you yet. You have a job to do. You have to go back to earth and kill all of the pedophiles and the committers of incest, just like the men who hurt you when you were little. Now, if that story is true, Sheila waited a long time before following up on it because <laughs> decades go by. Uh, she, she ends up meeting a fellow by the name of Bill Labar, who's a chiropractor, lives in the middle of nowhere up in New Hampshire, uh, was named chiropractor of the year in the county in his fifties, a beloved member of the community, gives kids rides on his horse and buggy. And he's a lonely man. His wife's passed away and he meets up with Sheila on a lonely hearts sort of set up. And she instantly moves in with him. They have sex maybe three times. And she says, that's enough of that. And, 
and she gets a she gets a takes a boyfriend, marries him instead, and the two of them move upstairs in in Bill Labar's office building. And then Bill gets sick; he starts to turn green. People say, "Well, he's a terrible color. He looks he's the color of green olives. What's wrong with him?" And Bill passes away. And turns out, not long before he passed away, he changed his will and gives everything to the wonderful woman he knows as Sheila Labar, although they've never been married. And she married somebody else while she was with him. She takes his last name and inherits his farm and becomes the richest woman in Epping, New Hampshire. So Sheila, at this point, is takes on boyfriends usually, and usually they're, they're smaller in stature and often mentally handicapped. Men that she can completely dominate. Uh, and there's always fights. I mean, she ends up sticking a scissors into some guy's forehead. She knocks out a guy's teeth with, with, a, with a brush. Uh, and the cops are showing up all the time. And the Epping police, you know, all two of them, I learned to be really afraid of Sheila because if you're alone with her, she'll rip her shirt and cry rape. So never leave her alone. So, and, and this comes into play because Sheila's boyfriends aren't coming back. You know, where, where's Mikey? Well, Mikey left. He's not around anymore. You know, where's Kenny? Kenny, Kenny decided to go away. I don't care where Kenny is. Well, trouble is Kenny's mom was worried about him. And she, Kenny's still alive when she calls the cops. But she makes a mistake by filing a missing person report rather than requesting a wellness check. So the cops come to Sheila's house and Kenny, who's all beat up, he's turning the color of olives for some reason. I've heard that forcing people to eat tobacco does this. And it's a slow poisoning technique, which is and he's, he's got burn marks, look like they're from cigarettes and stuff. And she says, he's not missing. He's right here. I always like to see him. So are you okay? He says, yes, I'm okay. You want to leave? No, I'm, I'm, I'm fine here. Your mother's worried about you. I know, I don't care. And they leave. And Sheila takes Kenny out to the barn, puts on a tape recorder, and then tortures him into admitting that he is a pedophile and has committed incest with his mother, at which point, because of what God told her, it's okay to kill him. So she kills Kenny, chops him up in little pieces with a garden shears, and puts him in the burn pit on the front lawn, sets the whole thing on fire. Now, police come back, and she's covered in ashes, and she's a mess, and she's babbling and they take her in and they interrogate her. And as you said, the interrogations are just unbelievable. And again, there's this sense that they're, they really are kind of afraid of her. She says, no, his name's not Kenny. His name's Adam. I had a brother named Kenny who died. And that made me sad. So I, I, his name's Adam Labar. He insisted on taking my last name. Just babbling like this. And so every time they say the word Kenny, she says, no, it's Adam. And it, it, she just disrupts the interrogation at every turn. And meanwhile, she's, she's clearly sexualized everything. She's, she's got so many rabbits in her, in her house that you can't step without stepping on a rabbit. And she brings a bunny with her 
into the interrogation and holds it on her lap. And when the bunny urinates on her, she cleans up with a little tissue and then wipes her mouth with it. And, and as gruesome as all this is, and the fact that the, there's Mikey Deloge is missing and Kenneth County is missing, they let her go again. Eventually, they find they, they determined that there's human bones in the burn pit belonging to three people. We still do not know the identity of the third person. There's toe bones from a third victim there. We're not sure who that is. Uh, all of her known boyfriends survived except for Kenny and Mikey. Uh, and she's, she's arrested and, and eventually convicted in court. Although she gives an awfully good case of being insane. The, the God told me to do it story uh, uh, would seem to indicate that she's not really aware of what's right and wrong, doesn't appreciate the difference. And that would be the, uh, the benchmark for, for insanity. Uh, of course, there's the other theory is that this is a woman who's not insane at all, but is just flat out mean and sadistic and came up with a plan where she could torture men to death and get away with it. Uh, and, but nothing, nothing makes complete sense. There's, there's, she, at one point, she took Kenny, put him in a wheelchair, and walked him around Walmart and said a bunch of bizarre things. The, the two Epping police show up again. Hi, Sheila, how are you? Oh, this is Kenny. Kenny, okay, yeah, I'm okay. And they let her go. Uh, so... And and the the thing that well first of all that i do have to point out to my audience which is again great about the book is our pictures <clears throat> so you get and, and for all the cases so you do that sad picture of uh kenny in the in the shopping cart or whatever is with the kerosene containers stacked on his lap the same kerosene that would be used to incinerate him yeah and vengeance is mine the title of the story comes from the quote in the bible that Sheila apparently lives by about you know, people who uh, were incinerated for disobeying the Pharaoh. Or, and as we talk about road off of road. As, as we talk about insanity or not, she was convicted of, of the uh, uh, crimes. Was she given death or life? Well, life in prison, life yeah. in prison. Yeah. And uh, there she sits. And she's, be she's become very maternal in prison. She, you know, most of the other girls are younger, and she's like a mother hen. Right. Takes care of them. Right. Very nice. Right. It's good. <laughs> so what is, uh, let me, now let's go back to the book in general with the few minutes we have left. Um, Michael's a very busy man. He has a lot of, of, of uh, interviews to do, so we have to <laughs> This so again, ladies and gentlemen, the book is Dark Roses uh, by Michael Benson. We'll talk about uh, websites and all that in a moment. Um, what in all these cases or any case you've done uh, just to sort of, I don't know, bring us inside. What do you consider one of one or two stories of direct? In other words, obviously, a lot of this is done through police reports and court records and whatever that you piece together a story but but firsthand 
uh, you know, uh, interviews or whatnot that you used? Well, I mean, too many, too many to talk about. We could stick with Sheila because sure. boy, do I, you know, I, I can remember being in uh, college. And I wanted to be a new journalist. Remember the expression, new journalism. It's like Hunter Thompson. <clears throat> you, you thrust yourself into the story. And you, you didn't have to write an interview with Mick Jagger. You could write a story called How I Tried to Interview Mick Jagger. And it could be about three days of just partying with roadies. Um, it opened things up. Well, I got nowhere as a new journalist. And life got much better when I turned my lens outward rather than inward. But for some reason, I got thrust into the middle of the Sheila Labar story against my will. I interviewed a woman named Bonnie Miroth, who was a neighbor. And I said, yeah, I'm under contract to write a book about this case. And she said, oh, you can't do that. I'm going to write the book. I'm a writer. I've, I've, I'm going to write the book about Sheila. Sheila's my neighbor. And I said, well, good luck to you. I have to write a book because it's my job. So I can't really step down. And she says, well, don't come down here. Don't, don't, don't come down this road. I said, well, I have to come down the road because I have to look at the house. I'm take pictures of things. I was sort of hoping you would come with me. Maybe we could go for a walk, look at the blue herons that supposedly are on the farm. No. So I go, I go and I drive past one house and there's this woman giving me this fierce look on the front lawn. I go, I'll bet you that's Bonnie Miroff. I waved happily. Get to the end of the, the dirt road, off the dirt road at Sheila's farm, climb over the fence. And I'm taking pictures. And I come back from behind the, the, uh, the barn, and there's a cop car. And there are officers Gallagher and Cody. Epping's two police officers. And I, 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 Cody's the first one I come to. And I look at his name tag. I go, Officer Cody, I'm writing the book about this case. You're one of the heroes of my book. And he goes, well, your impression of me is about to change. You are under arrest for trespassing. And he slaps handcuffs on me. So they put me in the backseat of the car. I remember a mosquito landed right in the middle of my forehead. And I was handcuffed and could not get rid of it. I just had to sit there and let it bite me. Um, they took me into the, the police station and they handcuffed me to a bench. So until the, the cash bond guy could show up. At which time I interviewed them. And they and, and they and they and they feel fine talking. Yeah, well, no, they they go they go on Amazon. They make sure I am who I say I am, and then they start answering my questions. I couldn't take notes because my right hand is handcuffed to the bench. But I'm I'm a I'm a human sponge. I'm absorbing everything at this time. So I got two interviews done, but I did have to go back up there and appear in court before they dismissed <laughs> dismissed the charges. Now, who at that time, this is fascinating, who at that time, uh, how long after everything was this going on in a sense of who owned the house? Yeah, well, th that was one of my first questions. Who's the complaint from? You know, this is an abandoned house. I think the bank had taken over the property. The bank had not complained. Clearly, Bonnie Miroth was the one who had complained, and it wasn't her property. Um, and the place was just covered with empty beer cans and stuff from teenagers who went to party by the haunted house. And, but so they, you know, they had a lot of problems arresting Sheila when they should have, but you know, the writer from New York with the New York license plates. They got him. They yeah. got him. Now in the few moments we have left, 
to, before we wrap up, tell us you, they, they, what, uh, again, you don't want to tip your hand because look, someone else will write the book first, but you're working on a project right now. And, and, and what is it about? The book is coming out April 26th. It is called Gangsters versus Nazis. And everybody who's read it is completely thrilled. I think I pulled it off. It's about the Jewish mob during the Depression busting up German-American Bund meetings. Because in 1938, there were 100,000 practitioners of the Nazi party in the United States, and they were having parades like the Macy's Parade, goose-stepping down 86th Street in Manhattan, and Jewish community got fed up with it. So a judge by the name of Nathan Perlman calls up Meyer Lansky, the gangster, and says, can you teach these guys that Jews can be tough? And he said, yeah, we could, we could take care of them. He said, we can't kill anybody. Don't kill them. He said, well, we won't kill them. We'll just marinate them. So every time the Nazis had a rally after that, these thugs would come in with the brass knuckles and the sawed off pool cues and bust some heads and a bunch of Nazis would have to go to the emergency room. And eventually attendance at these rallies was down. And that's what the book's about. Great. So I'm uh, sorry. You said it's coming out uh, in April. Coming out April 26th. It's called Gangsters versus Nazis. And make no mistake about it. The gangsters are the good guys. In this one, that is great. So let's uh, tell the let's wrap up with uh, your website. Or obviously, like you said, I found you. I, you know, I, have, I have a page. I have a page on Amazon. I don't have a website. On my That's own. cool. Hitch, hitchhiking on the information superhighway. Exactly. Uh, but you, you can find all my books on Amazon, and uh, that's where you'll find Dark Roses. If you want the gangsters versus Nazis books, that will probably be at a bookstore near you by the end of April. And if it isn't there, ask your uh, bookstore uh, attendant why it isn't there. So this has been a wonderful hour. Oh, of course, I will be back to you in a few weeks after uh, <laughs> gangsters versus Nazis. I mean, come on, you know? Yeah. Who doesn't want to punch a Nazi in the nose? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for joining us today. This has been a wonderful talk. Uh, uh, Three-peat. We'll maybe be back for a four-peat with Michael Benson. The current book is Dark Roses. And if you go to the Murder Most Foul uh, website, and you can hook up to the other interviews I did, which was Genesee... The Devil at Genesee Junction. The, the Devil at Genesee Junction. And then what was the double initial one? Nightmare in Rochester. Nightmare in Rochester. Those two books, as I said, you don't have to be from Rochester. And no. we've dropped a couple of Rochester names here today, by the way, for people in my area of the East Coast here. Wegmans is like stop and shop. So, Michael, good luck on, on your on Thank on you your, so much, on Jim. The this new has book. been a pleasure. And your other interviews coming up, and we'll uh, we will be talking to you again soon, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely. Michael Benson. Thanks. Take care, Jim. Not wishing to make light of any of the horrific stories in Dark Roses, occasionally a humorous moment sneaks through to us, the readers. In one segment entitled "Call Me Daddy," Michael includes the transcript of a 911 call that goes like this. 911. What is your emergency? Hi, this is Bob Deaver. I've been robbed. Somebody broke into my house, took my cash, a couple of my rifles, a recliner chair, uh, oh, and my wife. Uh, plus, they shot up the place. Your wife? Yes, she was in the recliner chair, and now both of them are missing.
That's all, folks. Well, on that note, I will bid you adieu, my faithful listeners, and thank you again for tuning in. If you want to find out more about the um, podcast, you can go to the podcast's website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. There's also an email link there that you can uh, leave me an email, uh, give me a comment, uh, maybe a case uh, that you'd like to see me cover, and that would be great. In the meantime, until we meet again, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.